All right. Good evening, listeners. It's April 2nd, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Padgett-Cobb. And I'm Kristen Finch. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of those students each week. If you're a graduate student at Oregon State University and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out more about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests, and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight we are joined by Lori Lutz from the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology, and Lori is studying sweet cherry tree viruses in the lab of Jay Scheidt. Um, Good evening, Lori. Hello. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what you do um, in your research here? Sure. So just to kind of start broad here, um, I think there's a push toward people thinking about where their food comes from, but maybe they don't think so much about the plants that they get sick. And so um, plants do get sick, (laughs) so maybe we should start there. And they can get sick by many different types of diseases, including Um, fungal pathogens and bacterial pathogens and viruses. And so essentially, I am a plant doctor, or the fancy name (laughs) is a plant pathologist. And I'm particularly interested in viruses because unlike other pathogens, there's no treatment or cure for viruses. And so my work is mostly focusing on prevention of viruses, which includes diagnosis and um, just knowing what's out there. So my current research is surveying the state of Oregon, looking for which viruses are out there so that we can make better management practices in, in sweet cherries. So sweet cherries are one of the top fruit crops in the state and are important to Oregon's economy. So I love cherries. And what does that mean for me if a lot of the cherries in Oregon that I might be finding at the store are sick? Um, well, the ones you would be finding at the store would be the ones <laughs> not sick <laughs> that are not sick. So, so they they made it through that process. But um, in order to have a, a crop, there is a lot of work um, leading up to that, where researchers and growers are really focused on um, either treating diseases that we can treat or preventing diseases by starting out with a tree that is virus free, for example. So I'm wondering, how do you even tell that um, a plant is sick, or specifically the sweet cherry trees that you're looking at? How do you tell that they're sick? Yeah, so there's definitely a spectrum. For viruses in particular, some of them are latent, where they're not showing any symptoms at all, and those are obviously of less importance. Then there are some that show symptoms where a leaf, we call it modeling or mosaic, or it'll have little ring spots that is a, uh, it's a yellowing, yellow coloration that's really distinctive of viruses in across hosts. And um, or it could show up in the fruit where the fruit is small or paler and just not mature. Or it could be dying branches, which could also be an, an assortment of other things. Um, but these 
So yeah, there's there's really a spectrum, and depending on how it's affecting yield, which the change in leaf coloration um, can affect the yield, but usually not to an extent where the growers are really even noticing it. Um, but something where the fruit is small and it's not ripening and it tastes bitter and they can't sell it, then that's obviously of greater importance. And obviously if their trees are dying, that is extremely important as well. So um, when you when you see the leaves and they are portraying this characteristic discoloration, mm-hmm. how do you then tell which specific virus it is? Is there a way of doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So just by looking at a tree and seeing the sort of symptom, we can't even really say for sure that it's a virus. So diagnosis is incredibly important. And there are many different test kits uh, available from things where it's kind of like a, um, they're called lateral flow strips or immunostrips is a trade name. Um, And it's essentially a pregnancy test for a plant virus. So two lines positive, one line negative. And these are for specific viruses or pathogens. Um, Then there are other um, molecular or serological tests where um, there's a 96-well plate and you put in uh, an antibody in that and add the sample. And essentially, um, it changes the color of the solution. And so if it's yellow, then it's positive. Or you can do something like PCR, polymerase chain reaction, and really go after um, specific viruses or virus strains. Okay. So also, um, it sounds like you are working in a variety of um, situations where you have field work and both lab work. So it sounds like you do both of those? Yes. Okay. So... um, To get the samples, I have to travel throughout the state. And the main sweet cherry production regions in the state are along the Columbia River Gorge in the Dalles and Hood River. And the other prominent cherry production region in the state is the Willamette Valley. We are also taking a survey of the entire state. And so we're visiting the other horticultural islands in eastern and southern Oregon that have much less commercial production. But we also want to get a baseline of what's out there as well. Um, Yeah. So do we know all about all of the viruses? We've been growing cherries in Oregon, what, for some almost 100 years, right? So do we know everything about the cherries, or are there still new things to be learned? No, and one of the reasons why we even started this research was because every year the Washington Tree Fruit Research Commission and the Oregon Sweet Cherry Commission get together, and they conduct this annual survey, and they rank 30-some issues on a scale of one to three, with three being the highest priority and one being the lowest priority, as a way to allocate their research funding. And so consistently, the category of virus elimination and identification has been ranked as a high priority, closer to the three end of that range. And in Oregon, it's been ranked in around 1.5. And so it was really curious to us is why there was this discrepancy. Is there really not that much of a virus issue or concern in Oregon, or are we just not looking? And you were able to find a, and describe a new virus recently? Yeah, so I, I wasn't able to describe a new virus recently, but we did find a virus that hasn't been previously found in the state before, and that's cherry leaf roll virus, and we found that in the Dalles, which is the main sweet cherry production region in the state. Okay. So how do you find out where these diseased cherry trees are? Who, is your, who are you communicating with? 
Yeah, so we work a lot with the extension agents affiliated with OSU throughout the state. And then we also work with field managers. So there's a lot of different uh, field management corporations, organizations where um, the people, we will tell them what we're looking for. We're looking for virus-like symptoms and um, maybe something specific like small cherries that um, where the fruit hasn't ripened appropriately. And then we will be escorted by these people in most cases, and they will take us to the different orchards and show us where they've been seeing these problems or where the growers have indicated that they're concerned about something. Okay. So I want to know how you got into this in the first place. You couldn't have just been born wanting to know everything about cherries. <laughs> no, and actually I, I, you know, it wasn't until my undergraduate when I even really considered a career like this. So, um, so as an undergraduate, I originally was in a pre-med sort of field because <laughs> I honestly didn't even know what my options were. And so after taking a plant systematics class, I became really interested in plants. And I was at a smaller university. It was a satellite campus of the um, main Indiana University campus, but it had more of a community college feel. And the... Uh, Degrees there were also limited. <laughs> so the degrees were biology or chemistry, yeah. physics, that sort of thing. So I have a degree in biology, but I really took a lot of courses related to plants and ecology after I found that interest. And I also worked with some mentors. So after I was like, oh, wow, this light bulb went off. This is what I really love and I enjoy. I didn't even know this was an option for me. I worked with one of my professors and expressed to her that I was interested in doing undergraduate research and really exploring this and seeing if this was a career option that I wanted to pursue. So you just basically um, created this opportunity for yourself by introducing yourself to your professor. So you created that Right. So okay. the wonderful thing about a smaller university campus is that you really have the opportunity to have these more intimate relationships with your professors and really get to know them on a personal level and them to get to know you. And so by expressing this interest in, in going to graduate school and wanting to learn more about my options, I was really afforded the opportunity to pursue that as much as I wanted to. Okay, cool. And so did you immediately go to graduate school then? No. So um, as life would have it, my <laughs> senior year, um, I had a child. So I have a six-year-old daughter, and my graduate school plans um, went by the wayside for a while. And I started looking for a job. <laughs> and I'm originally from Indiana, northern Indiana, and as you may uh, guess, there aren't a multi- uh, there are a lot of biology, biotech sort of related jobs there. And so I just started actively pursuing any company <laughs> um, with anything related to my interests that I could find. And um, I happened to send an email seeing if there were any job opportunities at Agdia, which is a agricultural plant pathogen diagnostics company. And they happened to be looking for someone to work on a small business innovation research grant through the USDA. And for some reason, 
they hired me. <laughs> and um, I was really giving an incredible opportunity to pursue some really neat research in the research and development department and give me a lot of um, hands-on lab experience in a very applied way and really expose me to um, the field. You know, So I, through that, I was given the opportunity to attend annual conferences and, you know, for the American Phytopathological Society and really start building a network of people, which ultimately <laughs> led me back to graduate school. Yeah. So, you know, once I, I discovered that there's something called an assistantship and that I wouldn't have to pay out of pocket to pursue this degree, um, I entertained the idea again. And, um, you know, several years later after my daughter was a little older and I was in a little bit different life situation, I um, thought it would be an appropriate time to see if this would be something that I could do. That's very um, interesting. And that also, while you were at Agdia, you had a hand in um, building this technical support department. So yeah, um, so I started out in the research and development department. And while I was there, the company really flourished. And so we moved from this really tiny building where we were all really squished together. And my lab space was actually in the testing services department. So in the testing services department, they receive samples, mostly leaf tissue samples, from all over the world and test them for various plant pathogens. And just by physically being in that area, I learned how to run the tests. And then I learned how to troubleshoot the tests. And then as the company was growing, we then moved to a bigger building. And also there was a need that we saw for a technical support department where there were people specifically um, addressing these issues and running experiments to figure out why something wasn't working or to field questions from customers and help them figure out why, you know, they were having some issue or how to alter a test to fit their needs. And so since I just kind of absorbed this experience from my where I was located in the building, um, I then had the skills <laughs> to do this sort of work. And so, yeah, there were three of us that started this department and um, created a database and all the things to log this sort of information and ultimately, ultimately helped get the company um, ISO certified. Okay, that, so. and that's not easy either, no. that, the certification. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so then, okay, so fast forwarding a little bit, you wanted to pursue grad school um, and you decided on Oregon State. Uh, what about Oregon State was specifically um, attractive to you? Yeah, so um, my husband was particularly interested in moving to the Pacific Northwest. And so I decided to kind of meld our passions together there. And with the Willamette Valley and the diversity of agriculture here and the established plant pathology program, it seemed like I could make a good fit here. And I applied to Washington State University and Oregon State University and um, was able to visit both of them. And it was really obvious to me that this was a great fit for me here at Oregon State and here in Corvallis, particularly because I do have a child. Yeah. And I think Oregon State has so much to offer families and children and as well as the community. And it's it's a great place to yes. raise a child. Yes. <laughs> as a, a mother of an eight-year-old, I can attest to the same thing. Yes. Great place. <laughs> 
All right. Well, I just want to real quick remind the listeners that you're tuned in to KBVR Corvallis. You are listening to Inspiration Dissemination. We are on the air with Lori Lutz, a master's student from the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology. And so, Lori, um, what do you think uh, especially about Oregon State is great for families? Is it just the community or something, maybe the OSU or like the broader community of Corvallis? I think each of those things definitely has something to offer. So when first looking at the university, it was really striking to me that they even that they have programs for students. So, for example, there is the um, free childcare for up to three hours a day at library at the library and at Dixon. There are um, many resources throughout campus for um, mothers who are nursing. Um, there is also a childcare stipend for um, students who are in need of childcare. And since Oregon has one of the highest childcare costs in the whole United States, it's really helpful that Oregon State also tries to um, help subsidize that in some way to help their students be more successful. Yeah, absolutely. That's incredibly important. And um, I also wanted to jump back into your research now and bring up something that really struck me as interesting and unexpected, actually, um, in that you had to sort of sift through um, quite a bit of historical archival information um, about uh, the sweet cherry trees. Can you yeah. tell us a little about that? So um, when looking back at the literature, it was really interesting to see how the field of virology has changed over the years. So in some publications, I would find references to a naming system that was similar to the way fungal pathogens are named, and viruses are not named in the same way in the present day. And so I'm like, where is this even coming from? And so I ended up having to get this publication from Michigan State University that was published in 1942 that ended up kind of being the Rosetta Stone to put it all together for me. So there's a current naming system. And then when they were first finding these viruses, they were just, um, they were giving them names and some of them were even like Prunus virus one. And it's like, well, what is that? And so this really helped me be able to make the connections between you know, what we're calling them now, like prune dwarf virus and prunus virus six, you know. So it was really interesting going through the literature and seeing, uh, trying to figure out what meant what. And then there's also other issues with disease names. So there's there's the actual pathogen names and then there are disease names. So one example that's particularly confusing is little cherry disease. So there's a really devastating disease that has been, um, prevalent in Washington in recent years that's caused by, that's called little cherry disease, that's caused by the pathogens little cherry virus 1 and 2. There's also another little cherry disease <laughs> that's caused by a phytoplasma, and it's no longer referred to as little cherry disease, but in the literature it is. Okay. And that one, so the phytoplasma 1 that used to be little cherry disease is now called Western X disease. So if you followed all of that, <laughs> good. If not, you can understand that it's confusing. <laughs> so you had to basically interpret that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and play a little bit of the history of science game. Yeah. Right. Who's right. naming what <laughs> and, why and why and what does that mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So what do you see yourself pursuing past grad school? Um, you're in the master's degree track right now. Um, are you considering a PhD? 
Absolutely. So as long as funding comes through in some in some way, which is always an issue, um, I definitely plan to pursue a PhD. Um, yeah, th- that's always a really challenging question of what what do you want to do? <laughs> what do you want to do with your life? Um, yeah, beyond school. And so in addition to the master's degree, I'm also pursuing the graduate certificate in college and university teaching or the GCUT program. And that has really opened me up to the idea of possibly teaching in higher education. Uh, if nothing else, it's really opened me up to the idea of being a effective communicator and the importance of that no matter what career path I choose. Um so it's really hard to say. I think there's a lot of serendipity involved in what happens in the future, and I try to just make myself as well-rounded as possible to open myself or to leave to leave those doors open. And that's a terrible answer, but <laughs> not at all. <laughs> that's where I'm at right now. That's yeah, yeah, I feel it's a perfect answer actually. Um, so you mentioned something about uh, effective communication, and I want to highlight. You and I actually also attended recently in Seattle ComSciCon, mm-hmm. um, actually a communicating science conference and um, really highlighting the importance of science communication. And can you tell us a little bit about your experience there and why science communication is important to you, putting you on the spot a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the conference was great. I really didn't know what to expect, but it was an incredible group of students from the University of Washington, OHSU, Portland State University, and several of us from Oregon State, some from University of Oregon. And it was just a very engaged group of graduate students who are all passionate about science communication. And we really had the opportunity to sit down and think about ways that we can um, improve science communication and really what our goals need to be. And so two of the main goals I really walked away with from the conference were that we really need to provide this bridge between what we do in academia to the public and in a way that we can communicate the uncertainty that we have in our research and in the scientific field to the rest of the population who may not be as um, familiar or accustomed to this gray world that we live in, you know, where everything isn't black and white. And then um, the other thing is just teaching higher level critical thinking before students come to the university, because only 30% of the population have a bachelor's degree. And so the majority of the population never attends college. But if we expect students coming into the university to only have this dualistic way of thinking where everything has a right and wrong answer, then maybe we should really be thinking about ways that we can communicate um, this this uncertainty and also to train people in a way that they can make decisions with when there isn't an obvious answer. Absolutely. I love your answer. I think that's so right on. Um, and. <laughs> I want to ask you here, we have two traditions on the show. We're an an advice (laughs) portion and uh, also a song uh, portion. We'll get to that later. Um, But can you offer a piece of advice to fellow grad students, undergrads, and or general public? Uh, For sure. Um, So 
My advice would be that having a strong support system is so essential. And uprooting from my life and family and friends and everything that I knew in Indiana and coming into Oregon State to a completely new life situation and everything, it was really challenging to create that support system. But I think even throughout my undergraduate um, career and through graduate school, like finding those people that have done the things that I'm doing (laughs) that can give me guidance or encouragement is really essential. Um, You know, even to finding the person that can read an email for you before you send it off (laughs) (laughs) to someone that can, you know, come over and water your plants or something when you're away, or in my case, someone that can come and watch Kaya when I need to go away to a conference or something. But finding that supportive community is so essential because you can't do it alone. All right, and then our final part is to ask you to provide us a song. And so I would like to know what song you've chosen, the artist, of course, and then why the song, why you chose the song that you decided to share with us. Okay, so the song I chose was Silken Sands, and this is by High Tides, which actually um, half of High Tides happens to be my husband. Uh, (laughs) So that's an obvious reason on why I I chose this song, a little shameless plug there. But um, I also chose a song because it has been uh, particularly dreary over the winter here, and it does rain a lot in Corvallis, although on my way in I was reminded that we also have beautiful rainbows here. (laughs) Um, Everyone talks about the rain, but maybe not so much about the rainbows. Um, But um, this song is a little beachy and may get us thinking a little bit about the summer and the warmer weather ahead. Great. I can't wait for those days. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Lori, it's been just a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And uh, you are listening to Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR Corvallis. We interview graduate students once a week, every Sunday at 7 p.m. And next week we'll be on with Sarah Alto from uh, Integrative Biology. So uh, we are signing off now and we've got a little bit more music for you until the 8 o'clock hour. And first is Silken Sands by High Tides. Enjoy. Enjoy.